I'm at this point, you can't imagine, I am shaking. I am, I can't hardly breathe. I certainly can't swallow. My heart is beating so loud, I swear they can hear me. I lift open the visor of my helmet so that they can, you know, look into my eyes so I can look into theirs. And then I just say, Mira, Mira, la cascada. And I'm pointing to the, you know, the waterfall. Mira, look. The other man kind of says to me, says, so you like waterfalls, do you? He says, there's another one in the jungle a mile away. And he lifts his gun. He says, follow us. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Alan Carl is a world traveler, adventurer, photographer, author, entrepreneur, and inspirational keynote speaker. He has explored more than 60 countries, photographing, writing, and blogging about them along the way. His quest for adventure and culture has led him to the most remote places on the planet and has afforded him the ability to meet people from all walks of life. Alan is here today to speak about his most recent adventure, where he spent three years riding his motorcycle 62,000 miles, visiting 35 countries and five continents. Alan, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Hey, great to be here, Travis. So, Alan, you uh, you have uh, some amazing adventures under your belt at this point. Um, I've given the listeners a little bit of information on your bio. Can you take a few minutes and go in a little bit deeper and tell our guests uh, who you are? Yeah, so I, I kind of give you a little genesis of how this three-year journey uh, came about. But, uh, but I, uh, I, well, I can tell you this. I grew up in Connecticut, and right now as people are battling the weather, when, when we were, were recording this podcast, uh, uh, and I eventually went to school in Syracuse, which we fondly called Syracuse. Uh, but I, uh, <laughs> I escaped the East Coast and moved to California, um, where I worked uh, my first job in a promotion company that actually promoted motorcycle uh, shows, motorcycle races, and, and other kinds of things. And um, and after a, a little bit of uh, of getting my, uh, I'd always been into motorcycling, but I, I eventually built my own company. And uh, fast forward to some, you know, 15 years later, uh, I found myself, uh, I've done that. I unfulfilled my job of, uh, of being a marketing consultant and advertising uh, branding expert. And um, at the same time, struggling with a, a marriage that had been about seven years at that point. And I decided to... Uh, Amicably, me and my wife parted ways. I uh, left my job at the company that I had actually started. And um, before I actually set out on a motorcycle, I started another company and I realized, what am I doing? You know, this is crazy. So I decided uh, that instead of just going and doing the comfortable thing of what we all do and we maybe have a change in our life, is uh, Instead of complaining about it, I, I did start this company, but then I realized I'm I'm also not uh, not not as much happy. This is not my passion. My passion truly is writing, photographing, photography, and certainly riding motorcycles. So I decided to pull roots, sell everything I own, hop on that motorcycle to take off what on what I originally thought would be a two year journey, but it ended up being three years around the world. Through 35 countries, I traveled 62,000 miles on five continents. Well, that's uh, that's quite the decision to do that. It's, I can relate to uh, to getting tired of the the office work and the the mundane uh, daily life of that of, of office work and, and going to a job. Um, man, what a what a fantastic <laughs> adventure to set out on. Even to plan for two years is is quite a long time to uh, to start out on. Had you done a lot of motorcycle travel uh, or world travel prior to that, leading up to it, or was this kind of your first endeavor? I'd always been uh, interested in travel, but growing up on the East Coast, as I discussed, you know, my uh, travel through high school and early college had been limited to you know, week-long road trips or things like that. And uh, my first very, um, you know, big trip was 
after I'd graduated college, after I had been working for the motorcycle company, before I started my company, I, I did a two and a half month trip to Southeast Asia, spending most of that time in Indonesia, where on all the different, there's, there's many islands, including Bali, Sumatra, Java, Sulawesi. And in each of those islands, I would rent motorcycles. So my motorcycle at adventuring had actually started, you know, a long time ago. I'd always had motorcycles, especially working for that company um, that promoted motorcycle-oriented events. Um, but when I finally jumped into, you know, the entrepreneurship part of my life, the motorcycle spent more time in the garage than it did on the road. And in that pursuit of career and then raising a family, it, it, it kind of sat there until I eventually didn't have one. I just had to, had to sell that. So as these changes in my life were unfolding, I bought uh, um, another motorcycle, a BMW F650GS, the, just the regular GS version. Um, and ultimately, as I started planning this trip, which I also put a couple years into planning it, not every day, but, you know, how am I going to tackle certain logistical things and sure. what, what do I have to do? But, uh, but. Uh, but so there was a big gap of, I would say, 10 years where I had very little motorcycling. But uh, I reignited that as part of uh, facing those changes and deciding it was time to pursue my passion. Well, that's great. I can relate to that. I was, uh, you know, as many of us grew up riding them as, uh, as a little kid on mini bikes and, you know, then took time off and started family and all that and, you know, got back into it a few years ago. And, like you say, it, it ignites the passion once again, and it's a it's not something you can most people can stay away from for very long. So no, I mean it, it's 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 good. Now I'm fond of saying, well, everybody really needs, you know, it's 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 fantasy, of course, but you know, three motorcycles. You know, you need that. You need that. Do you know? You need that small enduro dirt bike. You need the dual sport bike, and then you know, a sport tour in in that. And, and if you're really into the whole realm, why, why not a cruiser? You know. Uh, uh, you know, a, a V twin. It really doesn't matter on what what bike you ride, but it matters on uh, that at least you ride. That's hilarious. You've just about pe uh, pegged me right there. I do have the three. Uh, one is the TRZ four hundred. The other one is a six hundred cc sport bike, and the other one is the Sport Tourer. So, <laughs> I mean, I think you uh, you summed that up perfectly. There you go. Exactly <laughs> right. I mean, this 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 is this is uh, you know this is good because you know. There just isn't one all-purpose motorcycle, isn't there? There's so many different ways to experience that open road or that, uh, you know, fire trails and through the woods or the desert, as we have out here. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I got lulled into thinking there was one bike that could fit fit all uh, occasions. There really isn't. So I think you, you buy used, buy cheap, and you get to cover all bases. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right on. So adventure motorcycling, um, it's a great sport, great hobby. Um, in your words, why would you encourage others who are thinking about trying it, um, you know, curious about, uh, about adventure motorcycling? How would you let them know and encourage them to, to get into it themselves? You know, adventure motorcycling, in, in a case, this does actually come down to a little bit of your bike of choice, first of all. And and the reason that you would want to choose a, a dual sport or adventure bike, which which I'll define as just a, a bike that is designed to uh, work for you, you know, on, on pavement and off pavement. One that can hop curbs in the urban environment and, uh, you know, one that can also handle... Um, you know, like we were talking about fire roads or maybe a little bit of single track. Some of the smaller ones would work there. But but adventure motorcycle means that, you know, the, the adventure starts, I think, for me, is when you get off-road. Now, that's not to say, especially like look at the mountains where you live, Travis, out in Colorado. Out here in California, we've got some of the most incredible paved roads and most amazing routes where you can travel uh, through the twisties and wind around and, and have an amazing experience, which in itself, sure, is an adventure. But there is that moment, I think we all have it uh, in us as humans, that we want to explore, you know, the unknown, the frontier, the wild west as it was, you know, back in the day. And you're not going to do that on your, you know, your really, uh, you know, very expensive uh, V-Tin cruiser where you spent $9 million on chrome or on your, you know, your, uh, uh, your real tricked out 
sports bike, you know, almost naked sports bike that uh, the minute you, you know, you get to a little bit of loose gravel, you've got those tires just aren't going to have any grip on, uh, on anything that's not, you know, composite pavement of some sort. So, so by, by choosing a bike and the, the, the dual sport bike, you're, you're able to make that decision in a moment's notice and you know what, what's over there. And that's the adventure is to, is to is ask questions to wonder and obviously to wander. And on that bike, you're able to do it. And especially if you leave your plans or your desire, ever it is to get out of the United States, um, you get to a country like like Bolivia, where only 20% of that country's roads are paved. You know, you're going to want uh, a, a bike that's uh, that at least is going to offer you the opportunity to uh, choose the road less traveled. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing better than riding down a paved road only to look off to a dirt road and and be able to go explore that dirt road. You know, that would that drives you crazy just being on a, a road bike and you know, I we we have a lot of good riding out in Colorado, but it's limited. You know, the pavement is limited because everybody wants to be up in the mountains uh, for sure, but there are so many mountain roads that are just dirt. You know, there's fire fire roads taking off in every direction. And if you're just on a, a street bike, you pass by those all the time. And I just I would just start looking down there and thinking, I wonder what's back there. You know, it's that it's that uh, wish to uh, to go explore that, that you alluded to. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's it's funny. Before I even really was into dual sport adventure riding, which is a category that's kind of new, but you know, it's been, enduro riding has been around forever. And, and obviously out in California, we've got a lot of, uh, um, amazing desert riding that's, you know, goes back to the days of Malcolm Smith and Steve McQueen and the, uh, uh, you know, the Barstow to Vegas kind of races that, that were, uh, uh, documented in the original on any Sunday and some of these yeah. things. But, um, if, uh, what I can remember being in the Mojave Desert on a Seca, you know, uh, I think it was a 650 Yamaha, you know, it's right. basically a sport touring bike. And it had, we'd had bad weather and I was on some very remote roads, paved roads, of course. And I came down this road, which basically uh, crossed, crisscrossed a, a dry lake bed, you know, um, and as I, and it was long, you know, this, this was, I was probably, the whole road was probably 60 miles. That's how big this uh, lake bed was. And I'd probably gone about three quarters across and all of a sudden I came to this, it was washed out. The road, you know, it was just like a, a river. It was a chasm of, and it was about 50 or 60 feet across. And I went out walking in it. I'm, I'm in, you know, no dual sport, any gear or anything. I'm just in my, you know, uh, road gear, leather gear at that time. And, uh, there's no way I was going to ride my, because because it was also uh, a salt uh, bag. So that water probably, I don't know how long I've been sitting there, but probably was, uh, absorbed the salt in the area. And um, and there's really no way around it. And I just, you know, now that I'm thinking, I haven't thought of this in a long time. You just brought it up. And I had to turn around because there was no way I could get my, it was not there uh, with anybody. So I was a bit uh, resistant to actually try to, to, go on to the dry lake bed itself. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and with that with that bike and try to get around that and then get back to the pavement. So I had to turn around, which was, you know, that's a frustrating thing to have to go back on the same road you'd already traveled. We tend to like to do loops, don't we? Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's no fun going back the other way. There's an example back in my, uh, in my early motorcycling life where I uh, probably should have had a dual sport motorcycle. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and you don't, especially you being out there by yourself. You know, you could uh, you could find yourself out there for a little bit longer than you ever planned. You get into that situation, so yeah. unfortunately, you do have to turn around at those points. Do you take uh, curiosity? Do you take any kind of uh, tracking devices or anything like that on your on your rides, or do you just feel like you're around enough people eventually that you don't have to worry about it? Yeah, I know. I mean, I know now. What is it? The spot or something like that's really right. popular. People have. And I don't know, you know, a lot of these devices, like many things that we are uh, marketed to is whether it be alarms, locking devices, video surveillance, it's all based on fear, you know, what, what if. Now, I, I understand there's a need for prudence in, in life, but uh, I've never really been interested in that. You know, I, I did carry a satellite phone, okay, so in a case I needed to 
Um, if I was somewhere where I couldn't get access on a cell, you know, traditional mobile phone, uh, sure. I did have that opportunity. But as far as the tracking device, no, I knew I could always, even in the middle of the Serengeti in Tanzania, I had I tethered my phone, uh, tethered my laptop to a smartphone and was able to get access and block and, um, and upload pictures. So, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm a fan of minimalism to a degree because I'm a photographer. I would rather uh, carry another lens than another device that's going to tell, um, you know, mom or anybody where I am. <laughs> but I do need to let mom know where I am. So I need to get to the blog and I need to uh, text message when I do have access to service. So, so you can do that, but uh, ah, you don't need it. I don't need it. Yeah. It's funny you bring up, uh, you know, letting mom know it's uh, I did buy one of the spot trackers and really the only reason I bought it was not, uh, not because I felt fear myself is because my wife would feel fear if I didn't get back when I said I was going to get back. So yeah, yeah so <laughs> my riding buddy and I have found ourselves in situations where we couldn't let the wives know that, that we were tied up because of something that happened and uh, we weren't getting back, but we were safe. So we thought, well, we'll pick one of these up. And if ever we get into the, one of those situations, at least we can send a text message out and say, don't worry, you know, because that's that's worse than yeah. uh, having a, an issue yeah. ourselves. The, the unknown for people at home, your loved ones, for sure. And I don't mean to be cavalier with it. I, you know, I just I um, I know because of my experience that it's it's um, for at least where I have traveled, I was always within a day of finding either coverage for the mobile or you know certainly internet access, and I and I did have the ability to tether my device. Um, to, you know, uh, you know, even make a, um, a Skype call or something like that. Right. But, some side, some yeah, sort of context, some sort of context. So you do need to let people know. I mean, you know, sometimes I did have to go off the grid drafts. I, I would, uh, I, I mean, I scared people. I know that because I would just, during my three year journey, I blogged almost every day. I was, uh, it was, that was my job. People go, Oh, it's a great vacation. Alan. It's like, are you kidding me? I, I spent, <laughs> I spent as much time sitting in my, you know, hostel or hotel room or guest house behind a computer because I knew people sitting back home, whether it was in New Jersey, New Mexico or California that were following me and wanted to know where I was. And when I would leave and go off for a week, just and it wasn't like I went off anywhere. I was still connected. I just needed to unplug a bit and experience the the place I was in. But oh, yeah. man, the the emails went crazy. The comments on my blogs were going nuts. And like, <laughs> where are you? Is there you okay? <laughs> He's gone. We've lost him. I told him it was going to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Oh yeah, people. I I joke around. Uh, uh, it's funny because just uh, just yesterday I was interviewed by the local San Diego newspaper, and she had asked me uh, what did my friends and family think when I first told them about this trip. And I said, this is really absolutely true that they had. Um, taking bets that I'd either be killed, kidnapped, or ripped off. Meaning they thought, uh -huh. I mean, they thought, you know, maybe not killed, but kidnapped was very much in the news. And ripped off, that was the most common because, oh, you're bo you won't, six months, you won't even make six months. Your bike will be ripped off. You'll be coming home with a tail between your legs. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it never did happen. Well, that's good. Yeah, you hear that stuff a lot. And obviously, we've gone into that with other other guests. Um, but you know, I really want people to understand that the the big take is, you know, is that these trips they really do work out well in the end. You know, there could be a little missteps, little mishaps along the way, but in the grand scheme of things, there there's such tiny pieces of it that, you know, you, you can't you can't succumb to the fear mongering for sure. No, not at all. If you let fear drive you, you will not have. Uh any experiences and you won't know the possibilities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I, I know people that pretty much won't leave their house on a snowy day because the, you know, the fear has gotten to them. I'm thinking, what kind of life is that? Okay. Maybe something will, will, uh, come, you know, come to you, but you can't <laughs> live like that. You know, I know I, I was, I was on my book tour this, uh, summer and I, I'll never forget this. I stopped just outside of Memphis, uh, and cause I had an event, uh, near there. And I was staying at a cheap, you know, a cheaper motel, which wasn't in a great area anyway. But, you know, um, us budget authors need to cover our, could be, be conservative with our, uh, with our costs. So, 
But anyway, I was telling the guys, asking, where should I go in Memphis? And I wanted to go to the very much downtown, you know, the, the Beale Street, the blues, the, the roots of what we would, when we think of those, those of us not in Memphis or Tennessee. And he says, oh, don't go down there. Oh, don't you dare, Gus, that's dangerous. And I just, I was like, I mean, and here he is, he's a clerk in the, uh, and he was actually the owner of the franchise of this, uh, of this hotel chain. And I, and I, I said, no, you're kidding me. He's like, oh, no, no, I, I never go down there. So, so, so it's, 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 it's sad that sometimes people, and it might be a preconceived uh, perception from 10 years ago and things yeah, have changed, absolutely. you know? Absolutely. Well, that's what he sees on the news. Yeah. You know, he turns on the TV at night and that's the that's the image he sees. So why not? Why wouldn't he believe it? So for him, you know, adventure would be defined as going to Memphis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, therefore, I would like to go to Memphis. So I might there have to take go. that in someday. <laughs> Geargasm.net is the number one place to buy outdoor gear made by startups, independent, and innovative outdoor brands. They sell everything from backpacks, stoves, tents, solar power technology, trekking poles, and everything else you need when you go outdoors. Check out their full line of products for all of your day hiking, backpacking, and car camping needs at Geargasm.net. That's G-E-A-R-G-A-Z-M.net. Be sure to use the coupon code PODCAST to save 10% on your next order. Hey friends, don't miss out on the family fun that is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness this summer. Paragus Northwoods Company, located at the edge of the wilderness in Ely, Minnesota, is a leading supplier of fun for families and friends in the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Paragus supplies the canoes and the camping gear that makes a wilderness adventure so easy and so enjoyable. Find them online at paragus.com. That's P-I-R-A-G-I-S.com. Or pick up the phone and talk to their outfitting department at 1-800-223-6565. So you've covered 60 countries. Um, in, in all of that travel, you must have a few amazing experiences uh i'm sure you have way more than we can uh, than we have time for on this episode but do you have a couple that you'd like to tell the listeners about absolutely you, you know I, it, since we've been talking about all this fear i have to tell you that i i was at the early on of this journey uh basing a bit of my decisions early on on fear at least when i was planning in that two years of where do i go there had been so much media about how dangerous columbia the country of columbia was so in all my reading i decided well when i got to panama instead of going to columbia i was just going to put me and my bike on a plane fly over the country of columbia and land in ecuador and continue my my south american journey from there right right but I rolled my bike onto this bridge, uh, the one that goes over this, the Panama Canal and takes you onward and uh, into Panama City and parts, as we like to say, unknown. Um, the I decided that I didn't sell everything I own, pack up my bike to travel around the world simply to go the safe route. I decided that in order to realize truly all that's possible with, you know, experiencing culture and possibilities and, and the peoples that I needed to, you know, face my fears and at the same time accept the risk and face the danger, uh, if there is any danger. And, and believe me, Colombia is a dangerous place, especially back then it was more so. Uh, things have really been um, improved there. So I changed the trip. Now, at this point, we, you know, I didn't have my spot. Nobody knew that I was going to be going to Colombia. So in Colombia, after about two weeks of traveling through that country, uh, I'm finally headed towards Ecuador, and I'm headed towards the border. I get stopped by three policemen. Now, it's nothing I've done before. You know, it's just a routine military police checkpoint. They've got dozens there, except here they tell me I'm about to ride my bike through the most dangerous part of Colombia. They warn me, you know, this is where the FARC is. This is where the paramilitary hang out in the jungles, and they warn me not to stop. 
It's about four hours. They say drive straight through to the next town. Don't stop. <laughs> yeah, don't stop. So the road is rough and potholed at times and twists and turns, Travis. And, you know, it's like you're with every mile you're going, you know, the jungle is definitely getting thicker. Those mountains are towering even higher and uh, volcanoes and things. And the cliffs are, are steeper and there's certainly no guardrails. And after about two hours of riding, I hadn't seen a single vehicle. So I go into this series of beautiful S-turns. The pavement had been nice. And uh, coming out of that last turn, that's when I saw it tumbling some 300 feet into the river, winding below. It has to be the most beautiful waterfall that I'd ever seen. And I know I'd been told and warned that I shouldn't stop, but I decide that I've got to get a picture. I'm a photographer, and I just love to take pictures. And I It was seen... put there just for you, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. I, and I haven't seen anybody for two hours. That makes sense. Right? So, hell, I pull my bike over on the side of the road. Well, before I know it, before I even get my kickstand down, there are two men clad in jungle fatigues carrying automatic weapons on each uh -oh. side of the bike. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, where the hell did they come from? Now, they march in front of the bike, and they just stand there holding their guns. And then they ask me those questions as travelers we get, you know, all the time. And then, <laughs> except he's got to wave his gun around as if it's a punctuation. Where are you going? Where you been? You know, where'd you get the bike? And, the, you know, and the questions go on. And I'm at this point, you can't imagine, I am shaking. I am, I can't hardly breathe. I certainly can't swallow. My heart is beating so loud, I swear they can hear me. And uh, I lift open the visor of my helmet so that they can, you know, look into my eyes so I can look into theirs. And then I just kind of, you know, I've learned some Spanish at this point. So I'm trying to come up with the words to describe, you know, this waterfall. And I just say, mira, mira, la cascada. And I'm pointing to the, you know, the waterfall. Mira, look, the waterfall, que increíble. How incredible. Um so uh, the the other man kind of says to me, say, says, so you like waterfalls, do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how do I take this? <laughs> he says, there's another one in the jungle a mile away. And he lifts his gun. He says, follow us. Oh, you, you go, go to the waterfall, guys. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll stay I, here. Exactly. So, so now, mind you, I am, <laughs> I am standing on the side of the road in perhaps the most dangerous part of Colombia, nobody really knows that I'm here. I'm, I'm backed up on my blogging. Um, and uh, on one side of me is the motorcycle, of course. That's the way. It's my ticket to escape. But, you know, I'm thinking, okay, if I just say bye and get on it, are they going to shoot? And then I got two guys telling me I'm going into the jungle with them uh, with their guns. So I have to assess the situation, and I, I do, and I decide I'm – really don't have a choice. I got to go in the jungle with them. So we cruise through the jungle and it seems like an hour as I'm walking through and I decide, okay, I lift the camera to take a picture of the guy in front of me marching. This is back, but it's startled by the sound of the shutter. He turns around, he glares at me, point, you know, waving his finger like, no, 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 uh, in front of me. And, uh, and I think, okay, you're stupid, Alan, never to take a picture of a person with a gun in a foreign country, even doing like taking a picture at an airport, Travis, in some remote country, you know, is often illegal. They could camp confiscate your gun, your camera, you, they could uh, put you in jail or who knows what else. Right. So what, what was going through your head? I mean, when you snapped the photo, were you not thinking at all or were, or were you thinking maybe this helps me connect a little bit? on a human level or were you thinking I need to document something? So if I, you know, somebody <laughs> never finds me, if they ever uh, find the camera, uh, you know, that image is there. It's probably all of those things, Travis, to be honest with you. I, um, I, I, I tend to be, I'm, I mean, one of the things I like about motorcycles is that they're the greatest uh, metaphor for all of us for being open, exposed to the elements being outside alive. And I am a very open person. I, I, I treat life with a lot of levity. I don't take it too seriously. And I lift that camera and I thought, well, I'm marching in a jungle. This is, this, this is a, this is going to be a great story. You know, <laughs> there's nothing to lose. For really. somebody. <laughs> and, but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm saying, if something happens, I can, um, you know, they come searching for me. If everyone had figured that out, uh, you know, I could toss that, that camera and somebody eventually might find it and put two and two together. You know, that's a very little thing in the back of my mind. But my, sure. my true thing is, like, take it. But then I realized that wasn't good. So he takes the camera from me and puts it around his neck. 
So I figured, okay, this isn't going well. I am now shaking more than anything. Um, continue walking, which seems like for another hour, but finally we come to this clearing. It's probably, I don't know, it's not that big. It's just in the in the jungle, but above, but above this clearing, above there's a pool of water, clear crystal, you know, water, and above it, tumbling in three tiers, is this uh, is this waterfall. Oh, there really is a waterfall. That's really a is a waterfall. Sign. And I'm thinking, oh my god. Well, then the guy who's got my camera, he shifts his gun kind of so it's hanging behind him, and he starts taking pictures. Of me, of the jungle, of the waterfall. He even shoots it up at the trees. He takes pictures of his compadre, the uh, the other man. And then he hands the camera to the other guy and asks him to take a, a picture of the two of us Wow! in front of the waterfall. Wow. And I'm thinking, whoa, I'm starting to realize, wait a minute, something's happening here. So this is where you will certainly call me crazy, as many of the listeners here on the podcast, but I look at the guy next to me and I roll my eyes down and head nodding, looking at his gun. And I say, dude, that is a cool gun. Can I check it out? <laughs> Again, why not? Why not? <laughs> so, to lose. so to my surprise, he puts this gun in my hand and he warns me that it's loaded and there is no safety. So I guess there aren't on most automatic weapons, apparently, but I don't know. Um, so, of course, the guy with the camera has to take a picture of me with the with the gun now. So at this point, you know, the water is rushing down into that pool from the waterfall. The birds are singing. The trees are shifting, and the you know, in the jungle, it's like you know, it's just like all of a sudden, this heavy weight is off of me, and. And I realized that at that moment, that just mo just moments ago, this guy and this gun could have been used to kill me in a single shot. And then I realized that that my camera in the hands of the other guy probably cost me more than these guys will make in a year, both of them. Yeah, and, I'm and sure that's true. Yeah, it's at that moment I truly realized the uh, the possibilities about connecting with people, humanity, and you know, having that open experience, although with a lot of fear uh, going into it and the fear mostly of the unknown. But I walked out of the jungle safe and with my gun, I mean, with my gun, not with my gun, with my gun. <laughs> With your new gun. Huh? <laughs> I had no gun, let me tell you. No, I, with my camera. And, um, you know, bid these guys, goodbye, you know, farewell. And uh, just a, a, a an amazing experience, one that, pushed to both ends of my, you know, my emotions. Oh yeah. What a psychological trip that is just, you know, in the course of whatever it was an hour, just to walk into the woods thinking I'm probably not coming out of the woods, you know, to you go back and see a beautiful waterfall and take a few pictures with your brand new friends. And, and man, what a, I mean, what an amazing experience that is that, you know, to, uh, to be scared to hell to be in the beginning, but realize that you were able to establish this connection with these strangers, uh, and, and walk out a friendship. That's cool. Yeah. 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 Really, really, uh, real powerful moment. You know, it's at that moment I, I realized, and I say this a lot, this is kind of one of my, um, realizations, lessons learned is that even though I went out on that journey, you know, this motorcycle adventure around the world alone, I'm never really alone for it's right. always possible to connect right. even, you know, with anyone, anywhere, even in the most dangerous part of, of, uh, of Colombia, connect with people and humanity. Well, and it's neat that it happened in Colombia. I mean, Colombia is certainly a far way away, but you know, in the grand scheme of things in your whole trip, that was fairly early in the trip. So that probably really helped in setting you up and eliminating that fear and realizing that, you know, this is pretty much a worst case scenario that I just <laughs> walked into. This is what I would imagine would happen if, you know, if you know, people were telling me I was going to die and you managed to walk out of it. You know, it was probably some pretty cool pictures of the of the guys that you went in with. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's a good point. Uh, early pretty much made me, yeah, it, it, it didn't make me feel invincible, but it made me realize of that power of connection, the human connection. Right. And yeah. 
Well, and you really, I mean, I think you, you did make that human connection. And I think, you know, by lifting your visor and making eye, to- eye contact and, and talking with the guys, instead of just fleeing off, I mean, they may have just chuckled, you know, the, the silly gringo took off and, <laughs> you know, it would have a great story, but you made a human connection with them. And these guys probably tell that story quite often themselves, I would bet. Yeah, the crazy gringo. That's right. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. So that one, uh, that one turned out well. Yeah, even though it didn't look like it was uh, was going to in the beginning. Um, what about a story that didn't turn out so well, and something that you may have learned lessons from, or can help our listeners learn from uh, from what you've experienced? Well, you know, I always say I'm very fond of saying it's important to step out your, outside your comfort zone to take chances, accept risk, and um, you know, often we create our own obstacles in our minds that get in the way of us achieving what we want to do. I chose to go on this motorcycle trip accepting that motorcycles themselves, like anything in life, can be dangerous. But without taking chances, you never really do know about these possibilities. Well, I had no idea that the possibility of me getting interrupted during my trip was going to happen as I rode my motorcycle high in the Andes of Bolivia on a 300-mile or so dirt road, a barren, desolate, middle-of-nowhere road. Um... And on this road, the, the weather the days prior had, uh, had washed it out. There were many great adventure riding moments, crossing rivers, uh, washes, and such. But I went into a, about the only town, call it more like a settlement, uh, in this uh, road between the city of Potosi, Bolivia, which is the highest in the world, and the Salar de Uyuni. It's the largest salt flat in the world. It's about 4,000 square miles, or roughly the size of the whole state of Delaware. Wow. And my goal was to get to that Salar de Uni because uh, it makes Bonneville look like a playground, you know? Yeah, I bet. So I wanted to get and ride my motorcycle on there. But halfway on this road, I stopped, I rolled through this settlement. And because it's the only place for all the people, you know, the nomadic people that live in the mountains and the Andes around there, uh, that's where they come to get, that's where their market is, that's where the transportation is. And the, the road in that town had become rutted thick, deep, and it's this red clay kind of mud, and it was wet and slippery, and I ride through there, and my front tire sinks into the mud, the rear tire slides out from under me, I get smashed down in the mud, and my motorcycle, which weighs the GS650 Dakar, about 400 pounds, and I am carrying literally probably, I don't know if it's not 200 pounds, it's pretty close of all my earthly belongings, and it comes crashing down on top of me, and I try to get out from under the uh, bike after this happens, you know, like it's happened before. I've certainly laid it down, but I can't. My legs trapped underneath my pannier. I've got these aluminum panniers on the bike, saddlebags, and I can't get out from under it. And it's at that moment I realize that my leg is crushed, broken, finished, and that I oh. will. I've come to the end of my journey. You know, literally, I'm not going to get to that Salar de Uni. I'm certainly not going to get to the rest of the world. So, and it's about noon and it's, I'm sitting at 15,000 feet high in the Andes where there is no cell phone. I don't have the spot and I have no real way to, uh, to get and communicate with the outside world. Uh, I do learn later that they have a radio phone, which reminds me of, uh, one of those phones you'd see in the old World War II movies where they crank up a crank. Right. <laughs> and, and, and if there's any bad weather at all, it, it won't work. You know, it'll just be. <laughs> um, but what's amazing here, I'm lying with this leg broken in the middle of nowhere. And the sun is blazing down and I'm very pale skinned. Um, and that harsh high-altitude sun is, of course, very dangerous. I'm not sure how many get out of there, but before I know it, two boys, barely nine years old, appear out of nowhere and pop open umbrellas and just stare and hold and shield me from the sun. No kidding. Yeah. Amazing. And it's at that point I need to um, sort. I have medevac insurance, but first of all, i got to figure out how to get to them. And when I eventually do sort back, I get back to that city of Potosi where I started, which is, you know, another 100, 200 miles back on a very, very rugged road in a, in, at, a at a point where a, a terrible uh, mountain rainstorm had come in. And it took some, um, by the time I got back from the time I crashed, 12 hours before I got to that city, where in a hospital there, I 
you know, my medevac insurance company tells me, well, it's really tough. We we can't get a plane in there. Um, the the airport was new in Potosi, Bolivia. They just built it less than a year before, but it never been opened. And why? Because uh, nobody there could really afford to fly. And also sitting so high in the Andes, it's like the, one of the most dangerous airports in the whole world to fly in and out of. I'll bet. So I eventually do get back. You know, they do get a plane. I, I mean, the only time the airport was open, as far as I know, was, you know, up to that point, was to, to get a little Cessna four-seater in to get me out of there to somewhere where I could then get a, a commercial aircraft and get back. I mean, my leg wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't at the point where uh, I needed, you know, special medical assistance, but the medevac people sent a, a medic who met me in uh, Santa Cruz, another city in Bolivia, and, and I got back. But the real lesson here is, you know, yes, things can happen, accept the risk. I'm, I'm now realizing, man, but, but uh, I have surgery. They had to put screws and rods in my leg. It takes a long time to, you know, get the strength back in the leg and recuperate. Most of my friends and the guy in Bolivia who I'd left my motorcycle with all wanted to know what I was going to do next. The guy in Bolivia wanted to buy my bike. <laughs> True story. My friends wanted to know, uh, all right, well, you're, you're obviously, you know, you didn't get to do your thing, dude. So what are you going to do now? Well, I knew then, as I always did, that you don't quit. You know, that any obstacle is really a uh, opportunity to achieve those and realize those possibilities. So I worked harder to get stronger, and I did get back to Bolivia. And yes, my motorcycle was still there six wow. months later, and I continued that trip for another two and a half years. Man, that's great. So you, you hit a minor speed bump is the way you look at that's it. That's it. Yeah, it's a yep. pothole in the road. Yep. I can see that. So how long were you out? You had to go through rehab and whatnot back in California. How long were you uh, away from Bolivia? Yeah, it was six or seven months, you know, somewhere about six and a half months where, uh, and I also couldn't go back right away because uh, it was the rainy season. Uh, I needed to, um, you know, wait to, because it was in the Andes, wait for the weather to be right. And uh, that, so, so I, I worked harder, as I said, just to, to get back. Uh, back in shape and uh, and ready to rock and roll again. Right on. Well, you had to do it in the Andes. I mean, you couldn't pick another place to break your leg. Yeah, the you know, and, and, and also like the most remote destination in probably all of South America, other than maybe <laughs> the Amazon. Right. I mean, it's it, it really was of all places the craziest place to do it. But yeah, I, I mean, look, I needed a good story, and <laughs> but seriously, it's a um, it, it, it really, I immediately looked at this situation as no problem. I know I can get out of it. I never was like afraid and fear. Obviously, I was in shock. Right. But um, but perhaps the, the most uh, disappointing part of this, and I always share this, that here I am, you know, in Bolivia, and I, the doctors x-ray me and show me that, yeah, the leg's broken actually in three different places, tib, fib, left leg. And uh, they show me the X-ray, and I and and I'm in pain. So they agree to get me this the the pain relievers, the strongest they've got. And when they bring it to me, I realize it's like a high dose of ibuprofen. I think, good God, here I am in one of the largest cocaine-producing countries in the world. <laughs> yes, right. For all they can give me for a severely broken leg is Advil. It's just there's no justice. You can't give me the good stuff, guys. Come on, it's gotta come cheap. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Right on. So obviously you got back, uh, got back on your trip and uh, and finished the the rest of those uh, what thirty five countries and and you carried on. That's good. Yep, yep, carried on. I mean that. I mean here's the thing: is is as I say, obstacles are opportunities. I'll, I'll hammer that any possibility I get, and and that is when you come to change, you come to forks in the road, you know, making decisions. You know, you can't let. Fear, as we talked earlier, or what you might perceive as something getting in your way. You know, you gotta, you gotta change your perspective, which is so great because aren't motorcycles like we we call people in cars in cages, right? Or uh, motorcycle riders, right. and that's because yep. they they can't see everything. You miss your peripheral, you're there. So broaden your perspective, just like you are on a motorcycle, and you can see a lot more. You see a lot more, and you're you're willing to to roll with the punches, and you can have some fantastic journeys. Exactly. Absolutely. 
nature photographer John Fielder invites you to attend one of his popular Colorado photo workshops. Got an expensive camera? Get a return on your investment by learning how to use it. John will cut you to the chase by showing you his fabulous five camera settings. That's all you'll need. Then learn from the best how to use your eye to compose photos along secret roads in one of John's favorite Colorado places, guaranteeing you amazing images. Great food, great scenery, and great fun at sunrise and sunset. Visit johnfielder.com for the complete 2015 schedule. The name Joe Rust is synonymous with record-setting adventures in taking the adventure and motorcycling industries by storm. In 2013, she set the record for first woman to have ridden around the African continent solo, no backup and no support vehicles. In December of 2014, she became the first female brand ambassador for BMW Motorrad, South Africa. Then in February of 2015, she became the first internationally accredited female off-road instructor for BMW Motorrad in Africa and the fourth female instructor in the world. For world-class motorcycle training solutions, visit www.joerust.com. That's J-O-R-U-S-T.com. Well, you mentioned forks. Um, that's a perfect segue because <laughs> now I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk about forks. Uh, forks is your book, of course, um, as, your, as you rode around these uh, 35 countries and 62,000 miles. You did something special with the trip. So if you'd take a few minutes to talk about that and, uh, and anything else you might, uh, have done or have, uh, coming up that our listeners would like to hear and, uh, also give them the opportunity, um, to, to find out where to, to contact you and get a hold of your book and keep in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So, um, my, my book came out this summer. It's called Forks, A Quest for Culture cuisine and connection three years five continents one motorcycle and it pretty much chronicles my three-year journey through those countries in stories of connection humanity like we've been talking about here today and in photography rich beautiful photography including the picture of the guy with a gun and me and the gun and in food because how often do we sit down and uh, at the end of a day of riding a motorcycle with our buddies or with some new strangers that are only merely in minutes after breaking bread, new friends. So I decided that uh, I had to share the food, the real local food of each of the 35 countries that I visited on this particular journey. And, um, and I got to tell you, when I first came back, my idea was simply to write the adventure story, to write the memoir, the eat, pray, love for guys, you know, motorcycle adventure, you know, recovering, healing from, a, you know, a bad job and a marriage that had gone wrong. But yet when I finally got back, I realized that is a little indulgent. It's not so much about me um, that I wanted to, to write about my story. It, it, certainly we get that in, in, in Forks, but I really wanted to tell the story of the people that I met and how kind they were to me. Too often I think Americans and others realize think that that the world is against us in many ways and and the, the news certainly shows us great examples of why we might think that way but you know the point one percent of people that uh are are bad and negative in that is is just so minimal that i thought i need to focus on what's good or what's right in our world and that's what forks does it allows you to feel your my journey through the stories it allows you to see it through those photos and allows you to taste it through the food and and um, so I did a complete U-turn, and I decided to go at this book more like a coffee table book. So it's a hardcover, large format book. It's got some 700 photographs, 40 recipes, and stories from each of those 35 countries. And uh, I am really humbled because it's become a bestseller, and it's been on Good Morning America. We've had it in Newsweek, Forbes, Outside, National Geographic, ranked it as one of the best books of 2014. So I am so happy that, that this kind of idea I had, because I ended up publishing it myself, um, because the, the traditional publishing industry uh, wanted my memoir, wanted that eat, pray, love for guys. So I decided to attack this publishing, this book, much the way that I went out on the world and to travel it alone, I decided to publish this alone. And I actually ran a Kickstarter campaign to try to uh, promote it and get people to uh, back the uh, the idea to help get me to print it. And it was very successful. So I'm, 
I'm super happy for all of you who are out there who have bought the book that we're going to go ahead and offer your uh, listeners uh, a, a pretty much, I've only done the discount once in my uh, life. To get a signed copy, uh, you can go to ForksTheBook.com and to uh, enter a coupon, you can get $9 off. So it's normally $39. You can get the book for $30. That includes shipping. And um, I will sign it personally. You just leave a, you leave a note in the little comment area of who you want it signed to, how you want it signed. And, uh, and what did we decide the coupon code's going to be, Travis? We said... Uh, yeah, so our coupon code will be the, the, the name of our company, which is 180TAC. It's 180TACK. Just put that into the, uh, the coupon or the promotion field at checkout, and you'll get that $9 off. And I'll sign it personally, and that includes the shipping. So you can also go to Amazon. Amazon sells the book, and it's available at Barnes & Noble anywhere. You know, If they don't have it, they can order it. It's, 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 it's widely available. But, uh, but I'd, I'd love to personally sign it. If you've enjoyed the uh, podcast, we, we can do that. And, um, and the other thing is, uh, you know, I'm on the usual social media things. On, on, on Facebook, you can search World Rider, um, you know, World like the world, and Rider like Motorcycle Rider. And I'm also at World Rider on Twitter. And, um, and my website is worldrider.com slash blog. But you can, you can link to the blog from there because I have my publishing uh, business under World Rider as well because it's now turned into a, a business. And, of course, ForksTheBook.com is the, is the website specifically. You can learn more about the book. You can see pictures and all that stuff. But perhaps more exciting is, you know, I really wanted that book to be a sensory, multi-sensory experience. You know, the photos, the food, and then, of course, the stories. And when you – it's not an ebook. You hold the book. It, it feels good in your hands. It's hard-covered. You feel the paper. It's high, very high quality. But what I couldn't do is bring the motion and the sounds of the journey to life and obviously a book. I am about to head off on another journey here in the next month or two. And I'm heading to, to Asia, to China where I am going to cross the entire country, at least as, as everything comes on right now, unless the Chinese government changes its mind, I am going to go from one end of China to the other in about 30 or 45 days. And, wow. And a film crew is going to be coming with me, a very small one, because I've insisted that it not be like the Ewan McGregor um, journey. Caravan. <laughs> we're, not, we're not having a huge caravan. It's just going to be four, two cameramen, an audio guy, and a producer. And uh, we are filming uh, a television series pilot. And um, if all goes well, and, um, and the networks that have expressed interest do eventually choose to, uh, to buy this and continue it, there'll be, uh, there'll be a lot of uh, new adventures for world writer Alan Carl here. And I will be able to share this, um, these experiences and these exotic places on a motorcycle to a wider audience and hopefully inspire people not only to uh, to take chances and, and travel. And you don't have to hop on a motorcycle and travel around the world at years of time, but just whatever that new experience is that you have put, been putting off, you know, the idea is that you can uh, be uh, have, have a much more rewarding life and experience if you just open yourself up to that experience. And I think that's what this show is going to show. Well, that's going to be great. I think there's a, a huge appetite out there for that. And like you said, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody hop, needs to hop on a motorcycle to go do it. They can hike it, backpack it, ride yeah. it, you know, on a bicycle, and just yeah, just to inspire people to get out there and do similar. It's uh, that's phenomenal. Yeah, very excited. So we'll we'll see where that goes. I I I'm very um um. You know, it's a little bit right now, very crazy, stressful, busy time because it's it's coming up very soon and um, dealing with the regulations. Nothing that I haven't done before um, in terms of my, my trip. But now you add the complexity of a film crew and um, and a uh, uh, essentially a communist country. You know, we've got uh, uh, additional hurdles to go overcome, but very, very sure. exciting. Sure. Well, right on. Well, I wish you uh, all the luck in that, and I really look forward to uh, to seeing some of that. And I hope that the pilot works out, and you get, do get to produce a show. And I will be one of your biggest fans for sure. Yeah, I, I um, I'm, I'm very, very, very excited. So, uh, yeah, we'll see where that goes. But and there'll obviously be 
more books and um and and I would like to turn this book into a, a an audio book and at some point uh you know I haven't converted forks into an ebook specifically because it is a very tactile uh experience to hold the book in your hands to see the the the, the people and uh uh the photography and it's not something uh I mean I didn't tour around the world uh looking at a screen you know other than through the lens of my camera <laughs> right right and i i really believe that uh you know we we need to do that but if i do do an ebook i want it to be rich with a rich media and bring in some video and bring in some uh sound and also maybe even um since there's so many recipes we actually do some some cooking uh that you could you know kind of click on here's uh here's how you do this recipe and here's some video of me in Sudan. So it would take the book to another level. Uh, I do have, uh, uh, you know, since I travel alone, I don't have great uh, video and things like this. And it was before the era of uh, of uh, GoPros. So, um, you know, the, the footage and the stuff there is limited, but it's pretty cool. And some of it you can see, again, on, on my websites. All right on. Well, hopefully people come over there and check that out. And I have to say, I I personally own the book. I was uh, lucky enough that my business partner and podcast co-host um, bought that book for me. They actually bought it for they bought them the book for themselves, and they ended up gifting it to me because they loved it so much. Um, and then they're going to turn around and buy the book for themselves. But you know, I sat down with that book last night for the first time in depth, and uh, I was truly impressed with the quality of it, the photos you have in it, the descriptions. Unfortunately, the problem I had is that I sat down before dinner and was looking at that book. So I'm picking out all my recipes. There are some fantastic looking meals in there. So I'm sitting there, you know, before dinner and my stomach's growling. I'm looking at your book and I'm thinking, okay, what are we having for dinner tonight? I hope it's something like this in this book. (laughs) And it wasn't. It was rice and beans, but (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) But yeah, there are some, I mean, the, the pictures, descriptions, you just did a really fantastic job on the book. And I would say to the listeners, for the regular $39, it is is worth every penny of that. But if you're able to, to get that $9 off, get the free shipping and get uh, the signed copy, I would say go for it. Alan, I wanted to clarify, you're going to do this uh, through the end of March 2015. So being that this is a podcast and this will be out uh, indefinitely, you know, in, in infinity, um, I just want any listeners that do hear it, uh, take note that this is through March 31st, 2015. So if, you, if you're unfortunate enough to hear the, the episode later on, the uh, promo code won't work. But I do recommend going uh, to Alan's site and picking up that book and get it from him. Thank you very much. That was uh, good. I'm so glad that you dug into that book. I, I, I'm going to suggest for you to uh, whatever meal you may be uh, putting together over, the, over this weekend, uh, a real easy one for our listeners, too, is the... Uh, Syrian, you know, because Syria is such in the news and such a sad story because I did travel through Syria. But that Syrian fatouche salad is very much like a Mediterranean salad. I mean, Syria is in the Middle East. It borders Lebanon, which is right on the Mediterranean. And Syria actually is also on the Mediterranean. And it is a, you know, fresh, crisp, beautiful salad that you can cook with anything, with a barbecue, with, uh, you know, it's cold out, so if you're cooking a hearty stew, even like that. But this is, it's it, it'll appease the vegetarians, the um, you know, also the need to eat healthy because it's cucumber, tomato, red pepper, with lots of cilantro and mint and parsley and uh, olives. It's got all those good things that we love from uh, from a Mediterranean, almost like a Greek salad, but it is tasty. So cook that one up. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have to look that one up. Actually, the two that stood out to me were the clams and white wine and Parmesan uh-huh. from Chile and the mokeka. Oh. The mokeka, it looks so good. The mokeka is what, if I hadn't had that mokeka in the north of, of Brazil in the Bahia province, I never would have done this book with the food. But it was that dish. It's funny you, you keyed on that one. That is the dish that inspired this book. And I... You know, I always tell people, oh, be open, try new foods and everything. Well, I found myself getting in my own rut in northern Brazil because I always order the makeka. I just always wanted the Yeah, exactly. And I actually did collect that recipe while on the road. It's the only recipe I did because I didn't have this idea before going. And, yeah, it is good. It's a seafood stew cooked in coconut milk with this uh, um, unique dende oil. It's like it's a palm oil, but it's a healthy palm oil. 
that you can get at Whole Foods or Latin Grocer, Gourmet Grocer. It's not that difficult to find. Um, and, and if you can't find that, you can always use, uh, uh, I, I give some substitutes, so any ingredients in there. But it is just so delicious. I love that dish too. Yeah, just just a picture of a big big shrimp in there. Just I would say it's worth getting the book to be able to get that recipe and do it up right. So I'm gonna have to maybe even try that then this weekend. There you go. So. There you go. That's, <laughs> that's it. And you know now, of course it's 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 uh, it's winter time. I mean it works well because it is very fresh with the herbs even in the uh, summertime. But wintertime, everybody's you know nestled in their houses. It's a, it's a hearty meal too. No, oh, yeah, it'd be ideal. Well, great. All right. So in your words, how would you say that adventure motorcycling or maybe just motorcycling in general benefits society as a whole? And we ask this question because we like to delve into that side of uh, adventure sports. So this could be uh, just psychological uh, or it can be physical for people. Yeah, that's 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 a good, um, a great question, and, and it's a great opportunity to offer a unique perspective. And it's very similar to how we started this podcast Um that that as far as benefiting society, I think it benefits people, humanity. For those who do decide to venture into the unknown, to go off the beaten track, and and frankly, you know, as you said, it doesn't even have to be adventure motorcycle. Even on a motorcycle, we we tend to be more open. It's a bit solitary. You know, obviously, we can all ride in big groups with our friends, and we love to do that. There's great weekend rides. But the idea of adventure motorcycling tends to be usually maybe just with a couple buddies or like me. I did this alone. And I think what that does is it allows you the ability to have a bit more compassion because, you know, in, a, in, in, in so many ways, you're more vulnerable as a solo traveler. And you're also more open that if you do need something, you're more forced by the fact, fact that you don't have somebody you can just turn to to either ask for help or to interact with the locals. And one of the things is globalization and commerce, uh, globalization of the world and commerce is, is blurring the borders between countries and cultures that as a society, we need to be more open and, and, and we are already being forced to be integrated. But motorcycling allows us that ability, much like uh, you know any passion, any kind of uh, pursuit of... Uh, of a hobby or a passion that connects people from different cultures. It's a bridge to cultures. It's a bridge to uh, communication. It is, um, it's awesome. And then if you want to look at it from a more environmental impact mode, I mean, motorcycles are very efficient in fuel. And as we are trying to lose our dependency on fossil fuel, riding a motorcycle, you know, if you, if you think about it, even with just one rider, you know, has a hell of a lot smaller carbon footprint than than your car. So you're saving, um, you're using less fuel. And now with these amazing um, new electric motorcycles that I'm starting to see, you know, it, it's not. It's a matter of time before we see uh, that technology bridge over. What we're starting to see more um, accepted in the in the automotive category, cars. Now we're going to see it over to motorcycling. So, um, and it will even use less energy required than, you know, I mean, let's face it, the back of a Prius. I mean, I, I joke around with my Prius friends, you know, how much uh, environmental impact it took just to make those batteries. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, but right. so on a motorcycle, right. <laughs> you, know, you don't have that kind of big swath of, uh, of, of juice. So I think that that's, that's um, another a benefit of, of society is it's just more fuel efficient and it also takes up less space and you can, you know, it takes up less parking space. Let's, let's, let's build less parking lots. Um, you know, we, we could go on on many, many places, but really it's, it's the openness and the ability for a motorcycle to help you bridge the culture and communicate and uh, connect with people, whether it's in your own state, your own town, or it's across the world. The brotherhood of motorcyclists is, is is not exclusive to the United States, you know. How often as motorcycles we ride down the road and another motorcycle approaches us from the other connection and it's almost the given that that person, that motorcyclist is going to wave at you and you're going to wave back. You'll never maybe ever meet that person. You'll never talk to that person. But the fact that you're on a motorcycle and it doesn't matter whether you're on a V-twin, uh, you know, on a, you know, a, a 
expensive Italian bike or a Japanese crotch rocket, as they call them sometimes, you are still part of that brotherhood and you acknowledge that. And that is uh, something we could use all over this world is to focus more on what makes us the same rather than what makes us different. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And the openness is a good point. I, I think your uh, mishap in the Andes was a, a testament to that. You know, had something like that happened and you'd been in the car with three other passengers, you probably wouldn't have seen quite as much of an outpouring of support from the, the local townspeople in that situation. But the fact that you were a motorcycle rider out there by yourselves and approachable, uh, I think you you probably saw uh, saw that come out more than you would have typically. Yeah, different experience. All right, Alan. Well, I really appreciate your time that you've given us on the podcast. You have some fantastic stories, and I think you have some great things coming up from the sounds of it. And I really look forward to uh, to everything that, that, that you're going to do in the future and, and uh, the things that we're going to see from Alan Carl. So I wish you all the luck in all of those endeavors, and I, I hope to see good things and uh, have you back on the podcast so you can tell us about the, the videos or whatever else it is that you're you're diving into next. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about China. It's going to be amazing. Yep, I'm ready to hear it. So, yeah. And for those again, I'll just say it's at worldrider. You know, at worldrider on Twitter or just look up worldrider.pro, uh worldrider on Facebook uh and you can find out more about uh about the show and about other other journeys for sure. Absolutely. We'll get all that information in the show notes so you can see uh, see for yourself and pull it up and, and get a hold of and follow uh, Alan on his new adventures. Alan, thank you very much again. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about your, your new venture here, and I look forward to listening. I, I, I understand you know, we chatted offline a little, little bit about the amazing guests that you've already interviewed and the ones that are coming forward. So, uh, so I'm a listener. All right. Well, I'm happy to hear it. More subscribers, the better. Pass the word. You got it. All right. Take care. Hey, guys. This is Travis again. I just wanted to let you know that Alan Carl decided to extend the promo offer for his book through April 15th, 2015. So take advantage of that. Hop onto his website, enter the promo code 180-T-A-C-K, and get your $9 off of your book. 